So yesterday, we were discussing the, um, and also last week, we were discussing the end of chapter 14, which is how it is possible for someone who does not have the proper soul to become worthy. In other words, they could not the person that it says that, they, that Hashem has created Sadiqim, He's given certain people special abilities to bring themselves to a state where they are worthy. Worthy for the divine gift of a glimmer, a ray of the revelation of Hashem as it is in Gan Eden, in the heavenly realms. Thus, they do not truly delight in Hashem's present. Thus, they do not truly abhor the cleave and evil. How then can such a person fulfill their oath, the obligation which they took upon themselves to be a tzaddik? And so up till now, we've discussed two ways where we can mimic that approach to service of Hashem of the tzaddik. One was by reflecting upon the gross nature of physicality, one can develop a abhorrence to it, negativity towards it. And ultimately, with repeated treatments, repeated regular reflection, if habit becomes second nature, and the person can genuinely be said to despise physicality to some degree or another, thus mimicking in some way the hate of Kleber that the tzaddik has. Not identical, but similar. And what about the tzaddik's rejoicing and delight in the presence of Hashem? Well, if the person um, reflects and ponders the infiniteness of Hashem to the point that they develop a sense of true knowledge of what it means that Hashem is infinite, that will bring them to a state of joy, a state of spiritual upliftedness. Of course, they can't, as we ended yesterday, they can't, that will never become their nature, right? That, that state of joy only exists in as much as they're engaged in that kind of reflection. The minute they move back to regular life, um, they kind of revert back to themselves because it's not reframing something in their actual experience. It's using their mind to get to know um, that there's something beyond their experience. And so it can affect you, but it can't really change your character. That's what we ended up with, yes? Okay, now the end of the chapter is how you can truly, truly fulfill not with any sort of as if kind of sort of, but truly fulfill the oath to be a tzaddik, even though you're not a tzaddik. Mm-hmm. It's funny that the tzaddik, his hatred of evil comes from the fact that he loves, but for the baby, it's two separate things. Because you can't, because you hate what goes against what you love. But if your love is for you to hate the the klipa, you have to love the godliness um, in a very experiential way. That otherwise doesn't work. So unless you experience that kind of a love. The love of a bainani. A bainani also hates klipa. They just hate a different part of klipa. They hate the fact that it gets in the way. Therefore, any klipa that doesn't get in the way, they're perfectly fine with. Right? It's like, I have no problem with the law, except when the law prevents me from doing what I want to do. <laughs> right? I'm not like an principle anarchist. Good? Okay. So, so there's an idea here that we ended, and I didn't elaborate on it, which is the idea that's called an E. It says here, self-impulsion induces heavenly inspiration. I've, I've said many times, I'm not always thrilled with the translator, right? Mm-hmm. So, I, I, sometimes I feel like I understand when the words in the original don't mean the same thing in the language when you translate them literally and you need to like find some way to convey that I get that but sometimes they just mean exactly what they sound like in also the other language you're using 
So the, this is a translation of an Aramaic phrase, which literally translates as an arousal from below elicits an arousal from above, which I think is kind of, I mean, we can develop the idea, but I think is understood, right? If you are, if you being the person below are aroused, in this case towards God, right? Then what does that bring about? But on high, above in the spiritual realms, there's an arousal corresponding back towards you, right? So I don't know why they couldn't have just said that, but they didn't. Okay. So I want to talk about this idea of an arousal from below, arousal from above, and elaborate on what that means. Okay. There are two ideas which are similar but different. One idea is that God treats us measure for measure. So if you do something, God will treat you in kind. So if you are generous, God will be generous with you. If you are stingy, we don't want to continue that like we thought doing, right? If you overlook other people's slights against you, God will overlook your slights against him. If you are insistent that everybody give you every last bit of honor and dignity you are entitled to, then God will insist the same thing from you. There's a notion of mida keneged mida, measure for measure. Okay? There is a similar, related, but actually different idea called isrusa de la sata, isrusa de la, an arousal from below elicits an arousal from above. And I want to talk briefly about the difference. It's not the main part of the end of the chapter, but I think it's helpful for understanding. If you act in a certain way, according to the principle of measure for measure, God will act towards you in a corresponding way. But that's your actions and his actions. What's an arousal? If someone says, I'm aroused, what would that mean in English? Motivated. Motivated, right? It's a kind of internal experience, right? Right? Aroused would have synonyms such as motivated, awakened, inspired, driven, right? Excited, passionate, right? All those could kind of be, right? Things that lead you to action, but they are themselves not actions, yes? So then what does it mean an arousal from below unless it's an arousal from above? Feeling? It's a feeling issue, right? Now, again, sometimes we'll not really differentiate these concepts, but sometimes we will. So what this is saying is if you develop a certain attitude, a certain approach, a certain feeling, a certain drive towards the service of Hashem, that doesn't just change how God treats you. It changes how God feels about you. So, what would that mean? That would mean that it, the model should not be like a judge, okay? A judge, how does a judge treat people? Um, very objective. Objectively based on what they've done, right? Measure for? Measure. Measure, right? There's no intimacy, there's no closeness in that way, look, right? The judge looks and says, you have behaved in such a way which makes you deserving of X, therefore I will decree X upon you. Right? That's one way of, that's the, right? Now, if you have a friendship, a spousal relationship, 
um, a teacher-student relationship. Is it supposed to work that way? Why not? Right? It's right. It's not deep enough, right? There, nothing of the internal lives of the two are coming together. Now, I wouldn't want to point out an important caveat, which is if we say that the way you treat me, the way you feel about me, the way, you're, the way you, 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 your attitude towards me determines the way I feel about you, that's a problem. Why is that a problem? Because that means I don't have Right. Okay. The, the appropriate way of thinking about it is like this, is that a real close relationship is such that even though at the end of the day how I feel about you is entirely up to me, I make myself vulnerable so that the way you feel about me actually resonates and affects me. So at the end of the day, I can withdraw that, right? So for instance, let's say you're in a relationship with someone, they treat you horribly and they're just nasty to you, right? You could decide, you know what? I'm nonetheless going to view them in a very positive, generous way. Right? You could choose to do that, right? Because they're not determining how you feel. But what you're doing there is you're, you're in a certain sense for the sake of reserving an overall sense of peace and harmony, you're withdrawing from a level of closeness. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the idea of is an arousal from below, elicits an arousal from above, means that the way we feel towards godliness affects how godliness feels and relates towards us. Now, does that mean we have control over godliness? Or is that a decision on Hashem's part to make him, to bring the godliness into such a state that it can be affected by us? And by the way, he can revoke, revoke that. For instance, what happens when Hashem forgives us even if we haven't done a proper tshuva? Right? Hashem could do that, and he has done that in the past. Right? Um, or or Right, for instance, when the Jewish people were in Egypt. The Jewish people in Egypt, our sages say, were sinners. Right? And Hashem nonetheless redeemed them. Why did Hashem redeem them? What does the Torah say? I don't know why Hashem redeemed us from Egypt. We did Pesach, you should remember this. Why did He redeem us from Pesach, from Egypt? Why did Hashem to give us the Torah? To make us people? He gave other people the Torah. Why did He redeem us? The names, language, and what? The he name said he would. He told that's exactly right. It says he told the obvious he would, and so he decided to keep his word, right? And when the Jews were leaving Egypt and the Egyptians were drowning and the Jews were being saved, the angels were like, oh, excuse me, God, these people worship idols, these people worship idols, these are not so holy. <laughs> like, what's the difference? Right? This was not a case of the Jewish people um, um, eliciting something on God's part. So God was out in the reverse. It was God deciding to initiate based on promises he had made to the forefathers. Okay. So this idea that it's not like it's not a it's not a fixed thing, and by the way, even a judge right has a certain degree of discretion. But the idea is is that each side, both the person and the spiritual realms above, are in a state or, or, or where they are affected not just by what each other does, but how each other approach each other. Okay, and by the way, the same thing can happen. There's also the opposite, where Hashem's arousal from above elicits our arousal from. Below, have you ever been inspired to um, do better in Judaism for some reason that you did not know why? Mm-hmm. you know what the reason is? Hashem is aroused towards love to you, and the result of that is you feel kind of inspired Hashem back. Now, that's not the same thing as action, right? So these are different, okay? So now, in the context, what they're saying is that if you work really hard 
to bring yourself to a state of joy because you know God is great, even though you don't experience the bliss of being in his presence, right? That feeling that you've cultivated in yourself can actually trigger a corresponding feeling from above. So it's not the case that you can ever actually be, you're not going to integrate that sense into you like we said yesterday, but it can become part of a process involving you and someone else. And the result of the process is you can genuinely fulfill in a true sense the obligation to be a tzaddik, even though you're not actually become a tzaddik. How does that work? With all that, perhaps a spirit from above will descend upon him and he will merit something of the spirit in Hebrew called the ruach that is rooted in some tzaddik that will attach itself to him. So they may, may serve God with true joy, as is writ, written, rejoice in God, you righteous. That who truly rejoices in Hashem? The tzaddik. So what could happen? If you try to take joy in your knowledge of Hashem's greatness, that can be the inspiration, the arousal, that Hashem does what? He shares with you an aspect of some actual tzaddik. Now, this is a very, very weird idea, so I will take a step out of the text and explain it. I'm sure everyone's heard of the idea of reincarnation, yes? Okay. Reincarnation in Kabbalah, in, uh, which by the way, reincarnation is debated in Judaism, but Kabbalah, specifically the Kabbalah of the Arizal, is very pro-reincarnation. Ravana is very pro-reincarnation as an idea. But the idea of reincarnation in Judaism has to do with the idea that all souls are interconnected. So it's not the idea that souls get recycled, let's see. Uh, a non-Jewish idea. It's the idea that souls are always interconnected. So as much as your soul is an individual on the one hand, it also has a, all sorts of links and bonds to other souls. Okay. This can work in different ways. One of the ways this works is that after a soul leaves this world, that soul might have branches of it turn into full-fledged souls in its own right. So the simple analogy of this is you take a tree, you cut a branch off of a healthy tree and stick that branch in the ground, what do you have? Another tree. So that second tree, is it the first tree or is it a new tree? Or in some sense, both. Right? So when we say that so-and-so is a reincarnation of so-and-so, that's the basic model. Is that, that the, 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 you know, if we say that, say, uh, uh, let's use a, an example. Eliyahu and of Elijah prophet is a reincarnation of Pinchas, the grandson of Aaron. If we say that, then what would that mean? That would mean that when Pinchas passed away, a branch of his soul came back into the world as a full, as a fully, full manifest soul in its own right. But there's all sorts of different ways this idea of interconnectivity of souls works. So the idea of past life is not a Jewish... It is with a lot of caveats. In other words, several people could share the same past life because their branches off of the same original soul. In fact, all souls are actually branches off of the soul of Adam. Now, what's also important to note is this branching off does not necessarily require the death of the original soul. For instance, in Kabbalah it says that Adam had two sons. He had, he had more, but we're going to focus on the two famous ones, Cain and Hevel. For some reason, Shays keeps getting ignored, but whatever. Um, and Cain was a reincarnation of Adam's left shoulder. And Hevel was a reincarnation of Adam's right shoulder. The idea being is that the physical body serves as a symbolic representation of different parts of the soul. So it doesn't matter what, what, what the shoulders symbolize. So Adam had a soul, and the shoulder dimension of the soul actually branched off and became two souls in its own right, the right shoulder and the left shoulder. So Adam didn't have to die for that to happen. 
So you already have two kinds of branching off. The branching off that comes from when the soul leaves and then comes back, branching off that occurs in life. And there's all sorts of different kinds of interconnectivity between souls. One of the types of interconnectivity is what's called ebor. Ebor literally means pregnancy. So just so we're clear, pregnancy is the state of where one human being is living inside of a, another human being. Okay? That's what ebor means. So what would ebor mean where one soul is inhabiting or present inside of a? Another soul, right? So it's not the branching off soul idea. That idea is this. We have a different kind of interconnectivity where one soul lives inside the other soul. This can happen for different reasons. One of the ways that this can happen okay, um, is what is being described here. You have a soul of a tzaddik. The tzaddik soul has different dimensions. One dimension is called the ruach, which I'll talk shortly what that is. And the tzaddik, ruach, can enter into your soul. So what would that mean? That would be like the tzaddik is like the father. Your tzaddik soul is like the father. Your soul is like the mother. And there's something of, something of the tzaddik's soul growing inside your soul called the tzaddik's, an aspect of his ruach. And so what's actually happening now is that now you don't have one soul, but like a pregnant woman, there's actually. But now is that second soul a fully developed soul? No, just like the pregnant woman, the second person, not a fully developed person. Okay. Unlike, by the way, a pregnancy, this is a temporary state of affairs that doesn't then result in the, that soul having full blood. Right? The analogy only goes so far. So you have a tzaddik, and the tzaddik imbues some of his soul into the non-tzaddik soul. One second, the tzaddik imbues? Yes, that's what it says. He will merit something of the spirit that is rooted in some tzaddik. But is it the tzaddik that's doing this? Yes. Have you said this is not, this is temporary? The, yeah, this state of affairs is temporary. Okay. It's temporary like pregnancy. It's not like pregnancy and that results in like, you no. Know, there is, there's not a result in like, now that, then that thing comes out. So what do you have? You have a tzaddik, okay? And you have a non-tzaddik. And now we're talking about their godly souls. What happens is that the tzaddik takes some of his soul and what happens? It attaches itself. In the Hebrew, it actually says, it's this aber. It actually impre- becomes impregnated into the soul of the non-sadik. And so now living inside the non-sadik soul is some sadik-like spiritual force. The result of that being is that this non-sadik is actually able to experience the true joy that a sadik is able to experience. Thus, he'll be fulfilled in truth, the avowed oath, be righteous. At that point, the person is truly serving Hashem like a They are truly delighting in the presence of God, which they experience. And consequently, in as much as they're delighting in the presence of God, at that moment, they despise the sitrach, they despise the evil. Right? Truly. Now, what happens when that spirit leaves them? That they no longer have, right? So have they really become a tzaddik? No. no. But there's a kind of a tzaddik experience being infused into them. So if the goal is to achieve the state of a tzaddik, well, no, you're not achieving the state of a tzaddik. But if the goal is to serve Hashem as a tzaddik serves Hashem, you can truly serve Hashem as the way a tzaddik serves Hashem, not just mimicking it like we've been discussing in the previous classes, actually genuinely achieve it, but that requires assistance 
and you have to deserve that assistance. You have to earn that assistance. And what is it that makes you earn that assistance? If you Right. If you derive, not so much love as joy, if, um, if you really make it, and not just once, but make it a constant feature of your life, you make it a custom to try as often and as regularly as possible to derive joy within yourself from your knowledge of the greatness of Hashem, then that makes you a very desirable person in the eyes of above. And therefore, there's this desire to um, I don't know what the right word to put this is to unify the soul of the tzaddik with your soul and then what happens? You experience the joy the way tzaddik experiences the joy not the way you were experiencing it as a product of your mind. So Hashem like tells the tzaddik soul to do this or it just happens because Hashem wants it to happen? So there's an important triangle here that I want to I want to I want to unpack what you're addressing which is that there's there's Hashem, the Tzaddik, and you. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a... What I'm gonna, uh, I have two ways of approaching this. I'm going to ask which one I want. I have one way of approaching which is more authentic, but is going to definitely be more controversial and a little hard to wrap your minds around. And the other way is less authentic, but is easier. Which would you prefer? The more authentic. The more authentic. So the following analogy I'm going to give you, okay? If you have a carpenter, okay? So there's two elements here. There's the carpenter and there's the wood. Or we can use another example. You have the potter and the clay, okay? Two analogies, same idea, yes? Who's in control? The potter is in control of the clay, or is the clay in control of the potter? potter. Is the carpenter in control of the wood, or the wood in control of the carpenter? Which one, which way does it go? What? The carpenter. Why? He's doing the action with the object. Correct. Now give me the counter argument. The wood is in charge. Why? He's limited to what has a nature. It has a nature, and you can only do work with the wood based on the way the wood is, right? If it's high-quality wood, you can do high-quality things, low-quality wood, low-quality things, right? If you want to make certain kinds of fine china, you can only do that if you're working with very, very proper, refined kind of clay. If you're working with very poor-quality clay, you can't make those kinds of things, right? So they're both in control. There is a dynamic between them, okay? Make sense? Okay, good. I apologize for using this as the analogy because it's not the best analogy for me to use. Um, and I don't want to go too far into it, but we're going to use the analogy anyway because it's the most accurate. Okay. So let's just... I, I, I'm using right now control in that analogy, right? So if I look at sort of an active control, I see that the craftsman is actively manipulating the material. But if I think about it another way, I can say that the craftsman is responding to what are the inherent natures and limitations of that material, Right? So there's mutual influence going both ways, yes? Okay. Now, in a proper marriage, is it that the man is attracted to the woman or the woman is attracted to the man? Okay. That should be straightforward, yes? Okay. Now, 
if the man is attracted to the woman, does that all things being equal make the woman more attracted or less attracted? If the woman is attracted to the man, does that make the man more or less attracted to all things being equal? Let's, let's keep digging in all the other things, right? So we see something very interesting. The man is attracted to the woman. The woman is attracted to the man. The man's attraction to the woman heightens the woman's attraction to the man. The woman's attraction to the man heightens the man's attraction to the woman. Thus creating a very interesting dynamic where who's really causing this whole process to happen? It's interwoven. What? It's interwoven. It's hard to know. It's, it's interwoven, so it's hard right. to know exactly. It's interwoven, right? In fact, you can actually step back and ask a different question, which is, who set this up? Right? Who set it up that the nature of men and women are to be such? Right? Or you can ask the question about like, who set it up, the, the, the nature of a craftsman and material. Right? There's like a, that whole dynamic is embedded in some kind of reality. Who set up that reality? Right? You understand? Like, like I can think causally between the, the craftsman and the material, the material and the craftsman. I can think causally between how the man feels towards the woman, the woman feels towards the man, or the woman to the man, the man towards the woman. But then I can step back and say, there is clearly a kind of systematic dynamic of mutual influence. And in the case of the, 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 the couple, it's actually a better, better analogy because it's kind of mutually enforcing in a way that the, and there's an active element on both sides, in which case the, the craftsman and the material, it's not really like that. And then you can ask, okay, but, but a, that cohesive dynamic system, like how did that come about, right? They're both embedded in that. They're both products of that, right? So there has to be something that kind of stands outside of that system, which is responsible for making it be the case. And, you know, what, whatever's the originator of the human nature or whatever, yes? Good? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, what is the nature of a tzaddik? How does a tzaddik feel about a non-tzaddik doing their best to genuinely take joy in God's greatness on a regular, consistent manner? How does a tzaddik in their soul feel about such another person? <clears throat> no. Proud of the... Proud of like, you know... Any good thing that tzaddik would be proud of. I want something more specific. Attracted. And so the tzaddik, because they're attracted, they feel this urge to enter the life of that. When we're attracted to people, we feel we want to participate to be involved in their life. That's very different. If you over... Right, the, 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 you, you could like do a mitzvah and the tzaddik is very proud of you. It doesn't mean that the tzaddik is attracted to you. But there's, but there's something that happens when the person is really trying to, to know Hashem and to take joy in that knowledge in a real and authentic way, in a way that's a consistent activity in their life, right? That never becomes really ingrained, as we spoke about yesterday, but it's something they're always, they're not inspiring to once in a while, it's something they're really, really attempting to do. Then the tzaddik might feel genuinely attracted to that person's soul, and then what happens? They enter into participate. Now, by the way, a tzaddik could enter into the life of a person for other reasons. Maybe it could be compassion. What if a person's soul is lost? They're completely devoid of any godly sense. Could it be that tzaddik's soul is attracted to their soul? Not because they're really attracted, but because actually they feel a sense of compassion. Right? That's very different. Right? So here what we're talking about is you're actually making your soul seem more enticing to the soul of the 
tzaddik, and then what happens? The tzaddik wants to involved. be involved, but his involvement is on that level, right? There's there's levels of the tzaddik which are totally beyond you. There's levels of tzaddik that are relate to what you're dealing with. There's the joy in God, and so that's what the tzaddik tries to share with you. So now, where's God in this picture? Right. What makes it the nature of the tzaddik is that the tzaddik is attracted to such a soul. What is, makes it that the nature of a person is that they can receive such an influence of the tzaddik, right? So it's not like a shem is standing on high and dictating. It's, that's, that's a very childish way of thinking about it. Right, and since we understand that a shem is an ongoing presence, it's not like a shem set up and walked away. Um, so, right, so what happens is that 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 tzaddik feels drawn to this person in a very personal way, in a very intimate way. And the result of that is some aspect of the tzaddik's own soul becomes part of this other person's soul's experience. And as long as that's the case, this person is able to experience the kind of joy that comes from having the, comes from having the radiance of the Shekhinah. Does that mean that they're actually become a tzaddik? Are they the kind of person who's really worthy of experiencing the radiance of the Shekhinah walking on earth? No. But they're kind of person that a tzaddik feels very attracted to, very drawn to, that the tzaddik feels like they can't hold themselves back and wants to share. And that goes back to what I was saying. It's about an arousal, right? The way I feel about joy makes the tzaddik feel differently about me. The result of that is there's a kind of union of the souls. Is this, do they have to know each other? The tzaddik has to know you. You don't have to know the tzaddik. How would that be? Like, like I mean physically on earth. No, because it's the tzaddik's soul attracted to your soul. So the tzaddik has to know your soul because it can't be attracted to you. But yeah, it doesn't have a, the tzaddik, It doesn't necessarily mean that the tzaddik is currently embodied in a body or not. Like that doesn't seem to be relevant here. It could be that the tzaddik is physically alive, right? It's not, it doesn't preclude that, right? We saw before that, right? It's attraction. Right? It's this, right, that, this tzaddik soul feels attraction. Now, souls are closer and further from each other. If you want to think of it, go up like a body, um, the, the nerves in your body kind of work in kind of a, a tree system or also your veins and your arteries. So like the nerves over here in my little pinky finger, right, don't directly go to my brain, right? The nerves in my finger go to basic nerves in my arm, which then go back all the way up there, up to the spinal cord, right? So I can definitely say that the nerves in my pinky finger and my ring finger and my right hand are closer to each other as far as the nervous system is, so not just, I mean, physically closer than the, than the nerves in my other hand, my, my left hand. And that's because these nerves all come through this way and these nerves all come through that way, right? In fact, right now, um, the nerves in my two pinky fingers are physically closer to each other. But as far as the nervous system goes, they're still far away from each other because their connection goes through how the nervous system works. The same thing with the veins and the arteries. So souls, the interconnectivity of souls, has a kind of proximity and distance to it that doesn't necessarily correlate exactly with how things work in the physical world. Okay? Um, which means that which tzaddikim are most likely to be attracted to your soul? If you're like this. The tzaddikim that are further from you or closer to you. So what does that mean? Like yeah, tzaddikim-wise. 
What? What their personality is like you, their soul is like your soul. Wait, what, what does it mean for souls? Yeah. So remember how all souls are branches off of other souls? So if you go up through the branches, you can see which souls are more closely linked. Heritage. How, how it works doesn't match onto the physical world. You would have to have access. Just like, um, right? in other words, what I want is looking at the physical world doesn't tell you that information. You would have to have access to the whole and the other plane of reality that you and I don't have access to. Can a man's soul be... Attracted to himself in this way. Absolutely. This has to do with tzaddikim and non-tzaddikim. So, um, there's nothing to do with the gender of the person. Does it help if you're attracted to your no. wife that way? No, there's nothing to do with that. There's nothing to do with that. In other words, what, what, there's, a, there's a common danger of like conflating analogies and like, there's um, nothing to do with that. This has nothing to do with like nothing a person can right, do. Right. Those of us who do not experience the godly realms, we all call this stuff mysticism. Okay? Those people who do experience the mystical realms call this stuff like normal life. Right. Got it. Okay. I want to give you an analogy and a reason this analogy. Like I have little kids, and little kids do not understand the adult world. They don't understand things like marriage, they don't understand things like romance, they don't understand things like divorce, they don't understand things like friendship. They don't understand things like community politics. They just don't not have no conception. I'm talking like, you know, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds. They don't get it. And like, there, there's this assumption that like every adult, like my friends are the people in my class. So my father's friends are all the adult men that he knows, right? And like the dynamics of like couples getting along and not getting along, and getting divorced, and like. Like it's just, it, it, just this whole social realm of the complexities of human social interactions, which adult human beings are have an intuitive sense of, which is very real to them, arguably more real than the physical world. That to a child, it's just like nonsensical mysticism. <laughs> right? They understand when somebody's not nice and someone is mean, when someone gives them something. Again, oh, there's a deeper level where they can feel it, with that, but I'm talking about like a conscious formulation. They just don't get it. So I was well, trying to make sense of this. Yeah, that, that's what it's like, like, so we can analogize it all we want, and we can do a very good job of understanding the analogy, but that's all we're doing, right? Um, I mean, one of the things that you should know, like, this is, this is not the same idea, but it is along the similar lines. Sadiqim have been known to compete over non Sadiqim souls. Does a non feel it? So, I mean, if it happens, played out in this world, sure. So there was a famous chassid out there named Binyamin Kletzker. And when Binyamin Kletzker, when, when Shlomo of Kerlin came to visit the Alter Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe designated Binyamin Kletzker to be his, um, I don't know what you call it. So accompany him around. So like, you know, Escort. Escort, yeah. And Binyamin Kletzker was one of the greatest chassidim of the Alter Rebbe. And Shlomo Kerlin showed him all sorts of miracles. And he said, if you become my chassid, um, I will teach you the secret of the birds talking and all like all these mystical things. Like if you just agree to become my chassid, and uh, Bjelin Kletzker's ended up. He he said it in Ukrainian and it rhymes. I don't remember the Ukrainian, um, but it also the translation can rhyme in English. So I'll tell you. He said in the end, this is what he said. Um, after I don't I don't remember right now. I think he. 
I think he said he would consider it, and then he decided no, but I don't, I might be mistaken, I didn't look at the story recently, it could be that he right away said no, but the way he said it is, he said, um, again, he said it in Ukrainian, but he translates as, the master is a master, but not for me, the servant is a servant, but not for thee, meaning you are a true tzaddik of the highest order, and I am but a mere, you know, holy chassid, but, so my not following you is not because you're not worthy of being followed, or am I not... And I'm not following you not because I don't know how to follow. But my soul is not bound up with you. My soul is bound up with al mm-hmm. But the thing, the reason I mentioned this story is that the Shalom was like very interested in like keeping and getting and getting Yom Kletzker. And if you think about the idea that souls could be attracted to each other, again, putting the analogy, right? Can people be attracted to each other? Yeah. Can you really want to marry somebody if they actually want to marry someone else? Yeah. So now... You have to remove the notion of ego and all these things, but there is a there is a nature to souls. Part of the interconnectivity of souls is this sense that souls seek to bond with each other's souls. And there's a way in which Siddiquim seek to to merge and participate in the life of lower level souls when those lower level souls are really, for lack of words, sufficiently attractive, sufficiently appealing. And that's what this is being described here. Again, this doesn't have to require a physical in, per, in, in person interaction. The Hasidic movement very much made that a very central dynamic. I mean, the basic idea of a, a great Torah scholar traveling weeks and weeks to go to a Rebbe, you know, you know, if you read the, the writings, especially the Non-Chabad Hasidim, is very much about hoping to experience some degree of this. Arguably, it's a major part of it. But again, the, the idea precedes Hasidus. Hasidus just makes it much more explicit and creates a kind of human relationship around that thing. But what he's saying here is like a standard idea that you find in, 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 in classic, you know, Kabbalah theories and even earlier. So going to the Rebbe and experiencing something like what the Rebbe, I mean, can't actually do that. But here it's talking about something very different. He's talking yes. about something very specific, which is that you do the work of making yourself joyous. Joyous because of your knowledge of Hashem's greatness, and the tzaddik feels drawn to share with you the joy of experiencing Hashem's greatness. And that means some aspect of his self has now living inside of you. That's the analogy of pregnancy. And again, the Hebrew actually here uses the word for pregnancy. Yeah. Um, and if this is temporary, so what happens after? It could happen again. It just, it just, it just, it just, it doesn't mean that just because it happens, it's fixed and now it lasts forever. Um, it, 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 that, that, as long as the tzaddik is engaged with you that way, it lasts. And for whatever reason, I've been tzaddik's part of your party could fall apart. Certainly if you go out and sin or do something like that, that's going to destroy the whole thing. Um, but there could be other reasons why it could happen. I just don't want to prove anything like they achieve this and like, boom. They can achieve that, that, that kind of an experience. Um, but it really, but now one of the important parts of this is no tzaddik is going to really want to do this as a general rule if you're deluded into thinking it's your own personal achievement. Does that make sense? In other words, if the person thinks that, that this is going to be, that, they're going to, that, that this is their own doing, it kind of ruins the whole thing. The, the idea is that the person, because part of, part of, Part of the difference between the joy of experiencing Hashem's presence and the joy of knowledge of greatness of Hashem is that as much as you're taking joy in the knowledge of greatness of Hashem, you still have this unfulfilled desire to actually experience it yourself. There's still a sense of wanting, a sense of yearning built into that kind of joy. 
Whereas if you actually experience Hashem's presence, that's satisfying in and of itself. Um, and so, like, there should be, as much as the person takes joy in the knowledge of Hashem, that should kind of come on, the, at least on their part, their experience comes upon with the corresponding kind of emptiness, a wanting, both a sense of lack and desire, for, to experience what you know. Go back to what Anandji said yesterday. So you don't, you're not just happy that you're not just happy that you know you have the money. You actually want to see and use the money. Um, and so there's a humbling. There's a there's a, a, a of the spirit that goes along with that. And that's part of it. That's part of this. And the, if a person if a person just feels like super accomplished, and that they're achieving this lofty spiritual state, that associated kind of arrogance makes their soul, generally speaking, quite unattractive to whatever tzaddik might otherwise be attracted to. Um, kind of like you see in people as an analogy, we tend to be attracted to people that have good qualities, whether they're physically good looking or they're talented or they have money or whatever the case might be, right? That's just in human nature, rightly or wrongly. But we also tend to be very repulsed when a person tends to be very um, self-absorbed because they have that, right? There's a, a person who's smart or a person who's charismatic or a person who has a lot of money or a person who's good looking and is not self-absorbed about it is generally far more attractive both in a romantic and non-romantic sense than someone who has the same quality but becomes quite arrogant about it. That arrogance can actually make the person somewhat off-putting. So in a similar analogous way, when a person achieves that kind of joy, that joy has to come along with a kind of humility, a kind of sense that I know this and I have joy that it's true, but at the same time I feel a desire and some sense of a brokenness that I don't actually experience it for myself. And that makes, that makes the person really capable of, of really receiving from the, that sadik's soul, what that sadik's soul is able to share. Because the sadik feels that there's a place for him to participate or her to participate in the life of that person. But if that person is just all kind of full of themselves, I've achieved this lofty spiritual state, there's no room for the time. The sadik doesn't want to be involved in that. Will the person know that it's the soul of the tzaddik that's in him? Or will he think, like, can you confuse that with Hashem granting that to them and them actually becoming a tzaddik? Yeah. I don't know. I, I think realistically a person who's honest to himself wouldn't confuse the two. Would it's, not? Would probably not confuse the two. Um, what's the difference between this and in general the concept of tzaddik? Because the tzaddik's soul is there's no the tzaddik the tzaddik his soul is worthy to receive experience of the of, of the, the presence of Hashem. It's like a whole different thing. The tzaddik uh, is not getting from some other tzaddik. Like it's possible for someone to be impregnated the tzaddik soul just in general. Like it doesn't say that. That's a different kind of impregnation. All the only time impregnation is used is when every time we talk about one soul inhabiting another soul. But there's many different types of impregnation. We're talking about a very specific kind which allows you to experience it. There's other types of impregnation also. For instance, sometimes a tzaddik needs to accomplish something in this world to like rectify some issue in their soul. Um, and so instead of coming down, they just kind of enter into the soul of another person. There's another idea also which is like where a person might be facing a grave test and the, tzad, and, 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 and the tzaddik fears that they're not going to have sufficient motivation to overcome that so the tzaddik might impregnate themselves out of compassion so that that person has the motivation to overcome their challenges. There's other kinds of impregnation. There's an impregnation where the tzaddik wants to do a mitzvah that they can't really do. So they put part of their soul in this. So let's say, let's say somebody wants, is going to do the mitzvah of not intermarrying. The only way to do the mitzvah of not intermarrying is what? Not doing it. No. 
How do you do the mitzvah? You have to want to intermarry and then not do it. If you, otherwise, it's not count as doing the mitzvah. So can a tzaddik do the mitzvah of not intermarrying? No. But if the tzaddik can impregnate, put his, some aspect of the soul in, in the soul of someone who is going through that challenge, then he can vicariously participate. So there's all sorts of kinds of, of that. But we're talking about a very specific thing. It was, you have an obligation to be a tzaddik. You can't actually become worthy to receive that revelation because you don't have that kind of soul. If you did, you couldn't guarantee that you'd get the revelation. But what you can do is make yourself the kind of soul that a tzaddik would share his experiences with. And in that sense, you are fulfilling, in a genuine way, being a tzaddik. Not in the same way, but it's not mimicking anymore. But I just want to be clear, people like to know the system of all this stuff works. You can read Kabbalah, even after you read Kabbalah, it's like reading about, reading the brief summaries of the major principles of a system you've never experienced, you still don't really intuitively get it. Um, and as far as the view in Chabad is concerned, is that a rigorous understanding of all the details of how the system works is like distracting. The point is that these dynamics occur and incorporating that into the way we approach our own service of Hashem. Knowing that if I approach serving Hashem in this way, this is something that can happen, and that's a, and that's something I should aspire to get to. But exactly like the, the, the specific, you know, which souls, which like, like it's out, as they say in the military, it's above my pay grade, right? right. Um, so you can ask me questions about it, but that's probably what I'm going to say beyond that point. Anyway, if you have a question that no, wasn't like, no, you said that. Okay. Um, someone once wrote a letter that I was asking what, what, who, what was their previous soul's previous incarnation and the Rebbe wrote back to the effect of if this was the kind of information a person needed to know in order to serve Hashem it would be readily available meaning it's not really important yeah in other words like the fact that, that it is the case that our souls are a part of a larger journey going back to other missions that they're all interconnected that even if you're not, like, th- that these things are the case is very important for us to know but like the specifics of things is often you know not really important for us to know which is why we don't really have a way of getting to it completely parenthetical someone who claims to know about your past reincarnations probably lying to you probably lying to you as far as like mystical knowledge goes it's one of the rare kinds of mystical knowledge so I'm not saying it's impossible for someone to know that kind of thing, um, but it's highly unlikely. Are there legitimate mystics like that you know of that? That I know personally? Yeah. The only one that I know personally that I've ever met that I would say could make claim to this is the Rebbe, but I know of in history there would be people like this, but it's... I mean, you should know, like, like the fact that the Arizal knew who people were reincarnation of was considered to be amongst the circle of Kabbalists and Sfas, a rare thing. So the circle of Kabbalists and Sfas is, like, the famous Sfas, like, like, when Rebchaim Vital writes about how great the Arizal was, like, the fact that he could know this stuff. So it's like, you're talking, when a person's claiming, like, oh, yes, I know about someone's previous lives, and, like, you're claiming to be, like, the Arizal, the Baal Shem Tov, the Baal Shem Tov had this kind of knowledge. The Maga had this kind of knowledge. Um, then, you know, you're talking about a person claiming to be like that. Uh, someone who's like, you know, studies Kabbalah and is mystically inclined and has like a, you know, some spiritual vibes is not the same thing as being a Rizzo. Um The reason why I'm saying this is unfortunately there are plenty of people who do purport to have this knowledge and some use it in a benign way to inspire people to Torah mitzvahs and some people use it in a malicious way, but you should be cautious of that. Yes? Is this thing of souls having connections to each other? It's 
has completely no relation to like um, who you're destined to marry and stuff like that. When people talk about like soul connection, you know what I mean? Um, there is a letter of the Rebbe where the Rebbe outlines all the different viewpoints in traditional Jewish sources regarding soulmates. There is, according to the original notion of soulmates, um, and that being said, it is almost always irrelevant in the actual life. The idea of the soulmate is there's a certain level. Of, souls actually have what's called like kind of like a, a, a primary soul and then what's called a spark of a soul. Like it's purely technical level, you do not actually have a soul. It's what's called the spark of a soul. It's a technical term. Um, so there is an idea that when a soul enters the world in the first time, that, and the soul, by the way, here means the man, that soul has a second half, which at the right time they will meet and marry. After that, it, it does not necessarily mean that just because the male soul comes down, the soul of the man comes down, that the soul of the woman will come down, just because they're both here doesn't mean they marry each other. It's like there's no... So the, the example that the Rizal uses is that when it was the right time for David to marry Bathsheba, through divine providence, and maybe some you know, shenanigans on David's part, Uriah, her husband, was out of the picture, and he married Bathsheba. But that doesn't mean every time a soul of David is reincarnated, that means the soul of Bathsheba also comes down and they always meet up. It just doesn't mean that. And so on a practical level, like whatever the Kabbalah speaks about, the idea that there's a male half of the soul and a female soul, and they reunite, and it's like, it, it is part of the Kabbalistic system. It does not actually play a role in most people's lives and marriages, according to their reason. And we don't find anywhere in Jewish sources that there's an encouragement that people need to go find out if they're truly soulmates before they get married. Right, obviously. I've heard people say that if you have a Jewish marriage, then that means that your two souls were meant to be together. That's true. One second. That's true. But I would like to point out, it is also the same piece of Talmud says that if I buy your house, it means that it was meant to be that my soul lives in what used to be your house. That's just the notion of divine providence. <laughs> That's all that's referring to. So, okay, but I hear what you're saying. I mean, I, just, just to be, I, I don't mean to downplay this given thing. I just think it's important to understand. Like, it's not the same idea. Soul as in person. So it depends what sources you're using. I don't want to get too sidetracked with this, but the, but the basic idea is like this. There's a notion of divine providence. There's also a notion of slightly different, although related idea of divine decree. There is a piece of Tom which says that there is a decree upon who you will marry. Which question is that the same thing as two halves of the soul, not two things as two halves of the soul. There's whole different debates about this. But that same thing that has divine decree also is like which property you're going to own and like all sorts of stuff like that. Um, in practice, even these divine decree things have so many caveats and like loopholes according to almost all the halakhic authorities that in practice, um, and, and, and the way you see this is a very simple halakha, which is, the Rebbe always points out that the bottom line in Judaism is halakha. Here's the halakha. If a man finds a woman, he would like to marry. So you can't get married on Holomite. It's forbidden. Because you don't mix up two different kinds of joy. There's the joy of Yom Tif, the joy of the marriage. You don't mix them together. So if it's Holomite, you can't get married. However, Jewish marriage has two parts. One is called Kedushin, one is called Nesun. Kedushin is where you give the ring to the woman, and then she becomes technically a married woman. 
so she can't marry anyone else. If, if, she, you know, if she wants to marry someone else, we need to get divorced. But they're not actually married in the sense they can live together. So the real joy of the wedding is not the Kedushin, but the second part, the Nisun. We do these back to back. In antiquity, they did them separated by months or years. So the halach is that while you can't do a Nisun, a real marriage on Chalamet, you can do Kedushin. And what's the reason why you can do Kedushin? Someone else might marry her first. Which means, regardless of divine decrees, divine shemiris, it's entirely possible that even though you're destined or whatever to marry such a person, that someone else could beat you to it. Which means at the end of the day, this idea that like, you're predestined to marry somebody and like, you're soulmates and whatever is a lot more... Uh... Now, it is true, once you've married somebody, you should realize that that's a tremendous amount of divine providence. More, in a sense, deeper maybe than other things. Those brachas were said over the whole thing and take that very seriously regardless of whether your two souls come from like the same source or two different sources, beside the point. So there's kind of like a mixing of ideas that gets people confused. So then all the Kabbalistic lessons and stuff that people like to play about marriage is I'm just I'm personally against. People, but like, okay, even if you're against it, I hear a lot of it. I know. So I'm being honest with it's, you. It's just because people see marriage, because marriage is like a more important thing in people's lives than buying a house, usually? I guess. So there's actually like no reason for it and it's not really based on anything? I think a lot of it has to do with the confusion of conflating analogies with the thing that you're trying to explain and the fact that it does actually play out in like the biblical narrative in certain places. Um, you know, it's, it, 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 it's it's not that it's completely baseless, but if you take something which has basis and you extend it and expand it and embellish it, at some point it completely becomes not what it really is. Do you want to hear a good story? Sure. There was a man in Yerushalayim, and he was not married. He was like an interesting person. He was like, whatever, not like, not 100% normal. I don't like not like completely crazy, but he was like a character, and nobody wanted to marry him. So somebody came over to him and said, um, "You know, I found a good shidduch for you." So he went to there were two rebbes in Yerushalayim at the time. One was Shlumpa's villa, and the other one I forgot who he was. So, uh, I don't know who he was, but not not the I mean, there's no chabad rebbes ever lived in Yerushalayim. But so he went to Shlumpa's villa. I don't, I don't remember. He went to one first and he asked, should I do the shidduch? And he said, no, don't do the shidduch. That was like in his like, 30s, maybe early 40s. It's like, not like oh, that much more time left. And so he goes back, the guy says, no, I'm not interested. He says, why? He says, this tzaddik, this rebbe, whatever it says, not a good shidduch. So he says, there's other rebbe's, go, go ask a different rebbe. <laughs> so he goes ask a different rebbe. And he went and asked the other rebbe and he asked the other rebbe who says, this is a good shidduch. You should do the shidduch. So now you didn't know what to do. One of says yes. One of says no. So he went to the, back to the first Rebbe and he says, I went to the other Rebbe and he said, no. he says, don't, don't listen to him. It's a bad shidduch. So he goes back. So they're not interested. So the Shachan gets involved and he goes and says, I don't understand. You're both tzaddikim. You both have broken kaydish. Like, what's going on? One says yes. One says no. So, so I don't know which one of them explained. I think it was the second one. So he says, the other one knows that these two people are going to be miserable together. They're going to be miserable. They're going to, like, gonna, you know, some couples, like, they just, like, don't have a single day of, like, normal, like, decent relationship. 
these two people get married, they're going to be at each other's throats every single night. It's going to be miserable. So he doesn't want them to have the shidduch. I also know that despite the fact they're going to be miserable, the only person that he will be zoichet to have children with is this woman. So the question is, what do we prefer? To have a pleasant life or to have a child? And they got back to the guy. He decided he'd rather get married and have a child. And he got married, and uh, they, they were at each other's throats until they died. <laughs> like one of those houses where you're like, they're always yelling at each other, screaming at each other, but they had children. So. This is a nice story. It's an interesting story. She said, wouldn't you a nice story? <laughs> nice, I meant in the sense of interesting, not in the sense of pleasant. So, soulmates, you know? But that's, you know. Okay, so, so what, what we're saying here is that even this person who's never going to be a tzaddik, they can imitate, so we said three things. One, they can imitate the tzaddik when it comes to disdaining evil, right? And that can actually be in a genuine way. They can really integrate that. They can imitate the tzaddik in rejoicing in Hashem. Moreover, by rejoicing in Hashem, they make themselves the kind of person that may in fact inspire, arouse a tzaddik to want to share their own joy with him. And the joy of a tzaddik is the joy of being in Hashem's presence, not the joy of knowing Hashem is great. And that person would to experience that kind of joy. And presumably that would happen to the bainani during prayer, right? Not like, you know, walking down the street one day at random. Because that's right, it's in that state. Now, um, it mentions here this level of ruach. I want to just talk briefly about this. The soul has primarily three levels. Um, you've heard this before, there's three levels of the soul. Yes, no? No. Okay. The three levels of the soul are called the nefesh, which is the lowest level, the ruach, and then the neshama. And what that basically means is, what is the modality to which the soul feels connected to God? I would like to point out this is not the modality in which you as a human being would like to connect to God. Not the same thing. So, and the rule, is, the rule is like this. You can't have one without the lower ones. So the way the nefesh feels connected to God is through living life as God wants us to live. Okay, keeping Torah mitzvahs. But keeping Torah mitzvahs fully, right? Does Hashem want us to keep Torah mitzvahs in a dry way? So does the nefesh feel satisfied by the mere fact you just technically did the mitzvahs? Or wants the mitzvahs to be done with the appropriate degree of joy and enthusiasm and engagement and sense of priority, right? In other words, the nefesh is like, just like a person like has a survival instinct as a human being. The, the godly soul has a survival instinct as a godly being and it wants you to really not, to, to live a godly life. So doing mitzvahs with all of the required enthusiasm and passion and sensitivity that those mitzvahs are as God intended them to be. That's called, that level of the soul is called the nefesh. The level of ruach is something else entirely. The level of Ruach is the level that feels the connection to Hashem comes through the emotions we have as a result of experiencing God. We experience Hashem's presence and that brings us joy. It brings us love. It brings us awe. Okay. Now, what is the Tzadik sharing with a the person? Their Nefesh or their Ruach? ruach. The Ruach. Okay. Now there's the level called the neshama And the level of the neshama is That the person The, the soul feels that, that real connection to Hashem Is Is through knowing The truth of Hashem as it really is 
because the sense is that even if you're feeling something, the feeling, the reacting is like, is, is, is your relationship to Hashem. Whereas when you truly know something, it has become one and part of you. These are very lofty things. On some level, every soul is some aspect of everything. The idea is that what is a tzaddik sharing? He's not sharing his sense of Hashem. He's not sharing his drive towards Judaism. What is he sensing? Sharing with you in this case? The joy that he has from being in Hashem's presence. And that's why it uses the term ruach, because ruach is primarily about the emotions that we have in response to our awareness of Hashem. Independent and above and beyond the enthusiasm to serve him in Torah and Mitzvahs. What about Chayan? Nothing. Not really. They're not discussed in the Chayan. I mean, there's obviously part of Chassidus or whatever, but they're not really... I just want to, like, the reason why the translator put the ruach there, because it, it means that it's a technical term. You don't, the tzaddik is not going to share with you what his knowledge of Hashem is. You're not going to now know what the tzaddik knows about Hashem. And, that, and we're already presupposing that there's a certain satisfactory degree of your nefesh. Your Judaism is as, a, as it really should be. And you're getting this enhancement, this experience that's above and beyond all of that. Do you act through your nefesh? Like a person does a mitzvah yes. through their nefesh? The, the nefesh is the thing that drives you to do mitzvah. Like? To give you a corresponding thing, the thing in your animal soul that makes you want to eat when you don't have enough food, and the thing that makes you jump out of the way if a car is coming, and the thing that makes you think twice about spending money on something that you might, might be a risk, right? that sense of you need to like take care of yourself in the world, Right, but the godly soul sense of that is called the nefesh. But taking your care of yourself in the world means living a life full of Torah and mitzvahs with as much energy and passion and, and keeping the halacha as should be, right? Okay. The ruach is something above that. It's, it's delighting in Hashem's presence and, and feeling this reverence and this awe and this joy and this ecstatic enthusiasm and this whatever. And like, that's above and beyond the experience of, of living life of Judaism. And, and you don't really get that, right? Who gets that? And the tzaddik shares it with you if you make yourself sufficiently appealing. Yeah. What? The ruach feels connected from the emotions that we feel because of the An knowledge awareness. of Hashem. Oh, yeah, yeah, the knowledge of Hashem. But the knowledge of Hashem only comes from the Shema. But the, no- and the Shema is about that the knowledge is the connection itself. That's a much deeper thing. And you, you can only have ruach if you have your nefesh like working and activated and and full, yeah. Like a very simplistic reading of Kabbalah goes like this. You get to like, it's like you get to graduate. So once, you gra- once you've perfected your nefesh, then you graduate to ruach. Once you graduated ruach, you get neshama. So it's like you don't get to go to high school unless you graduate middle school, middle, middle school. You don't get to go to middle school unless you, you know. You're not born with all three levels inside of you already? You kind of like get it? Yep. <coughs> is that like one comes in at your bris, one your bar mitzvah, that type of thing? It's not the same thing. The bris bar mitzvah thing has to do with your ability to utilize your soul. It's a different kind of coming in. It would be nice if like you turn bar mitzvah and voila, you're also filled with the spirit of godly awareness. But it doesn't work that way, having gone through bar mitzvah myself. Um, all it means is you have now the ability to access the, your soul's abilities. All right, we've successfully finished the chapter.